This is uh, some proto-Bruce Willis Armageddon shit right here. Karri. Hey, Henrik. This is the Flick Lab, in case you didn't know. Yeah, most definitely, because it's once again Thursday, and we live in miserable hell. It's once again the Flick Lab time. It's hosted by two Finns who travel around the world via films. So every week we analyze one film from head to toe. Any country in the world, mainstream or underground, doesn't matter. We don't discriminate. As will be evident also in this episode, as we traverse into the realm of short films. Yeah, since since our coffee account doesn't make any money, and we are just burning through the dollar here, we are finally venturing into the dreaded, in the public domain territory of cinema. That's right. That's what you get, since you don't support us. Yeah, okay. this is your own goddamn fault. But... Today's episode actually might be one of the shortest, if not the shortest episode of the Flick Lab, which might actually be somewhat of a relief to our listeners, who who many, at least to me, has been griping about how our episodes take way too long to cover any particular film. So, you know, guys, maybe today you are in for a treat, and today's episode will be shorter than five million years. Well, we will see about that, because there is so much history around this film, so this will take a while still, I'm afraid. We'll see how Yeah, and uh, with the notion of history, also something that, that maybe the returning listeners of the podcast might notice, is that today's episode, I would already guess, would be different in the sense that today we are extremely heavy on the history, and... Not so much on theme and symbolism, as today's film is kinda too hard and way too short to actually delve deep into what was the filmmaker's intention and what does this mean and what is the running theme in this scene type of analysis that we quite often at least try to give to you guys in, in the podcast. Yeah, we will see about that. We will see about that. Let's see what Uncle Curry has packed for us tonight. But hey, I studied audiovisual communication, worked on TV. That's my kind of background in the professional circles of kind of TV entertainment, let's say. And Henrik, on the other hand, is... Studies booze and, and expertises in alcoholism. That and... On the side, a little bit, he is in the Lapland University to become the Master of Arts someday. Yeah, is is nowhere in the near future. Well, plenty of time for drinking, and Henrik is a hardcore cineast. Yeah, to uh, to an obnoxious level, I might add. As I know anyone who knows me can vouch for. I know you somewhat well in the realm of film already, so I can vouch for that. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am the rebel who has skipped many classics in the film history, and I have done basically what this podcast is, podcast is doing right now. It's picking 
from here and there, from around the world. Not discriminating. This podcast is definitely not sponsored by the moon, who still feels insulted by the contents of tonight's film. Well, the poor guy is half blind these days. Thanks to the disgusting and smelly French people. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Frenchies. This is also the kind of film podcast where we investigate the scientific validity of films that didn't <laughs> attempt to be scientifically it, accurate it, it, in the first gonna, place. It, it, it's going to be hard case today. <laughs> because we, we, are, we are dealing, once again, kind of like, like James Bond and Moonraker, like a territory we are once again dealing with science fact. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to approach. Like, are you going to tear it apart because of this or just take it as a fantasy? Let it go, Henry. I'm ready to let it go. It's just a little bit of a fun ride. Yeah, yeah, same here. And those who haven't yet guessed or checked out the show title, which also gives gives the film away right away. It's today we are looking at George Melies, A Trip to the Moon from 1902, hmm. which is marks as our second silent film. Ever it on is. The lab. Yeah. And our first short film in this podcast. So we are indeed widening our horizons. Initially, we were thinking of doing this once a month. I am ready for even expansion on that territory, knowing how much work it is to put, a, put together these podcasts and not getting any money for it. Wink, wink. So I hope these uh, shorter films will benefit us and our listeners to not drive you crazy. Yeah. So, you know, guys, that's actually something where you can chip in here quite literally. Like with opening your wallets, you can actually show show us if, if this shorter episode length kind of works better for you than than the previous it takes fu- fucking forever episode style that we have had up until this point <laughs> okay i'm already dreading that we will be recording here for four hours and after this we'll be like okay what did we say in the beginning my god that that might happen like th- there's that one infamous time when we were supposed to make really easy and really <laughs> short 50th. 50th episode anniversary episode and <laughs> oh boy yeah let's not even talk about it if, let, let's not mention that one ever again uh, just a little advertisement in between before we go to the point you know we can be found on apple podcasts of obviously you can go to spotify that's my favorite way to access this podcast other than that you can also use any Podcast applications, pretty much. Podcast Addict, for example, on Android is very popular. And don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts to give us a five-star rating before you have even listened to this episode, because that's the greatest idea in the world. No, but when you finish it, you can do that as well then. This history of the film regarding me, I've seen it once or twice many years ago during when I had these curiosity trips to the early cinema. What about you? I've seen something like five times before. Uh, for some reason, I don't that often watch Melies' work. And I don't that often watch A Trip to the Moon. I don't precisely know why why that is. It might be because it's such a well-known film and you basically have seen individual scenes throughout the film for 
five million times already. Like, for example, the famous shot of the moon with, with the human face and the gigantic rocket, rocket sticking out of the eye. It's one of those shots that gets repeated to an obnoxious level. Levels in in basically in all media. Yeah. But and and second maybe is that due to due to the fame of the film, it is something also quite mandatory mandatory to be watched. Like in in Finnish university, if you if you study arts, you will be taken behind the university and shot if you haven't seen a trip to the moon during your freshman year. So there's also that aspect. So that might be kind of the reasons why I don't regularly revisit the movie. Because you kind of become so familiar with it, even if you if you don't try to see it. Yeah, and what I find curious doing this episodes in the last few times is that I find a lot of parallels in them to my own life. For example... I try to sometimes find time to get away from the society, go somewhere to hide underground with my magic mushrooms, and but I always get interrupted by them darn aliens. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's living in Poland. <laughs> Their French name is uh, La Voyage de la Lune, which uh, more or less means a trip into the moon. So kind of referring to this mushroom trip right there. It's... Uh, French satirical and also known as a pataphysical fairy fantasy sci-fi adventure short film from 1902. Or it could also just be described as simply as a trick film. But we will get to all of this later on. As you mentioned, the director is uh, Georges Méliès himself. He advertised this film as a piece a grand spectacle. It's his longest film at the time one of the most complex films that he made, which took three months to complete, which was, well, no pun intended, but quite astronomical at the time. The film also does employ every trick that the director had learned or invented up to that point, or pretty much has all the tricks that he had during his entire career. It's also often said to be one of the first narrative films. It's not the first, But it's the most known first narrative film. There were the odd fictional narrative films here and there in the late 1800s, but these were usually no longer than a few seconds or a few minutes long. We're talking about a 16-minute long film here. Or it depends on the version and how many frames per second you see in that. So it could be from 9 minutes to 16 minutes. It is kind of, once again, one of those cases where there is no one unifying length to the film, which also makes kind of a talking about it and experiencing it kind of a nightmare because basically once you see the movie and you start to talk to, uh, talk about it to another person, you immediately, can't, uh, pretty soon, you kind of run into the notion that it was like it, it was 14 minutes of good time and you remember that it lasted only for nine minutes and then you have this what the fuck is going on what is reality type of experience and you start to question yourself have you actually ever seen the the full length film or have you just seen you know cutting out snippet version of it and in some cases you have seen the cutting out snippet version of it 
at least when it comes to the final scene, which went AWOL for several years until it was rediscovered. In a way, at least parts of it were discovered, and then it was put together of those separate elements, kind of regenerated final parade scene. We will get to that also. Yeah. Okay, so this film is known for its innovative special effects and quite higher production values, and that it actually had an actual narrative, which was still rare at the time. It had a beginning, middle, and an end, and this ultimately led to the concept of the narrative film. Uh, yeah, uh, many is uh, often is is described as as the father of of modern cinema, and uh, narrative fictional cinema, and a modern blockbuster. Right, at the time when uh, Melias was doing his thing. There weren't too many people around making movies. There were the Lumieres. And Lumieres, uh, I'm not sure, but at least most of their work is more like a documentary, just shooting the real world as it happens. It is. Uh, I, If I remember correctly, Lumieres don't have a fictional film on their account. And for a long time, neither did Melies himself. The, the dude also started originally shooting those small documentary snippet films about basically everyday life, like people walking on the street and other such smaller documentary features. And from there eventually evolved into making a fictional narrative-driven experiences. Right, this was a guy who always wanted to up the ante. As you go through his filmmaking history uh, by the years, of course there is the financial aspect that will hinder his level of production, how many films he were putting was putting out every year. But there's also the fact that the films became longer and more elaborate and more thought out, if you will. Uh, yeah, many years never settled as a as a director as long as he was acting. Yeah. Exactly, like until his final days, he was still putting together ideas for his new film, and, and, and this was in the 1930s, only about six months or so before he died. Yeah, so anyway, if even if you've never seen the film, you most likely are aware of that one short shot, which you already talked about, the spaceship landing on the moon's eye. Even I knew this shot before I even practically knew what is a trip to the moon or had seen it. it yeah, it's it's kind of the... I would almost say that it is the most well-known, most famous shot, uh, shot in film history. Yeah, and the film overall has been inspired by a wide selection of sources, including uh, Jules Verne, or he might be more known to the English audience as, as something like Jules Verne, his books From the Earth to the Moon and its sequel from 1870, Around the Moon, were inspirational for this particular work. And another highly likely candidate for inspiration was H.G. Wells and his The First Men in the Moon from 1901, because the French translation also was published a few months before Melias made this film. Maybe you have read any of those books. I have read uh, the H.G. Wells book as also the, uh, I would say, most prophetic books from Wells and also most prophetic books from Verne. Okay. And I, 
with that note, I would actually make the argument that you can clearly see the inspirational aspect of of Wells and Verne in 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 a trip to the moon. Not so much necessarily in in the science fictiony department, since Verne and Wells were kind of more grounded and more in detail, more in depth in the, in their science fiction of their stories. But in in the kind of in that in that sense of of scientific wonder that that all these works have in them. Uh, Verne, for example, in in his stories, he put a lot of things kind of out of his ass, and there were a lot of concepts that never ever really played out like Verne imagined them. Uh, for for example, traveling around the world and having a submarine is. Not precisely as as an easy case as Vern makes it out, and you kind of won't end up battling giant man-eating octopuses with your submarine. That that is very much like not heavy fact science fiction a- aspect of Vern, but there there is kind of the the unifying theme between Melies Vern and Wells. It, it is it is kind of kind of this visionary aspect to the science fiction. They're taking certain certain type of ground level ideas, like how a spaceship rocket could work, and then taking that concept and then evolving that into a straight out fantasy. And there is kind kind of this this almost childlike joy that that Wern, Wells, and Melies take with with the with the possibilities of of a scientific advancement and i see some parallels another character that is not created by these writers but the writer called uh, rudolf erich raspe a german writer who created the character of baron von münchhausen and his adventures to the moon but it could be just that they appear to be very similar other possible influences might be Jacques Offenbach and his operetta Le Voyage dans la Lune, which was an unauthorized parody of Verne's novels. And there's also a trip to the moon attraction that was in 1901 in the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And we will get to that thing later. But it's speculated that because... Melias saw this exposition in Buffalo or was aware of it. He came inspired for it, and this was his his idea to conquer the world with his films by doing a trip to the moon. Film was forgotten and disappeared for nearly thirty years, uh, and it was this this rediscovered around nineteen thirty, and which was around the same time when the director Jos Melias' contributions to the cinema had been started to be. Recognized. Melias's story as as a person is is kind of it's very Hollywood like story. Like that, there is that that renegade inventor who rises to the top and then then falls into obscurity and finally has that triumphant comeback at the very end. And in that regard, Melias kind of reminds you of the typical Hollywood film narrative. Uh, yeah, and when it comes to popular influences, this is something quite notable. We could still talk about the film called Hugo, 
from 2011. You might have seen it, I don't know. I actually have not. Okay, so... Unfortunately, I, I know that that's, that's kind of, once again, that's a late year hot shit film that basically everybody says that you have to see it and and sure it's a it's a Corsese product uh, it's a Corsese joint so on, on that record I should have actually checked out Hugo yeah way go, way back ago but for some reason I haven't yeah this is something that reinvigorated the interest toward, towards George Melias because the plot revolves around as far as I know, an entirely fictional character, Hugo. But the plot becomes intertwined with the actually kind of historical Georges Méliès, who works at a toy and candy shop at a Paris train station, as he did. So I don't think it's for everyone, like mixing fiction and non-fiction like this together. But it's definitely an interesting piece visually, and I recommend to check it out. Yeah, I, I've often heard the remark that Hugo as a film is a kind of a love letter to cinema yeah. and the art of filmmaking. And on, on that ground, I most definitely should have seen the film already. The budget was $150 million and unfortunately it uh, grossed worldwide only $185 million. So it was a huge, huge disappointment and I think the losses were in the hundreds of millions. Eventually. And today, Scorsese directs for Netflix. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Georges Méliès, finally. Finally, yeah, let's. Since the dude has been most notably very significant to the art of film. And kind of is, is the birthing ground which has led into the chain of events that has led the two of us to become podcast hosts. True. Thanks, Méliès. Or, well... Yeah, or... Depends kind of who you ask, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, this is a director who has also appeared as an actor in many of his films. Uh, The the, Around 300 of his films has also Melias acting in the films out of his 520 plus something movies. Something like that, because the, the amount of films that the man shot is kind of a astronomical in a lack of better word today we we celebrate filmmakers who like Takashi Miike who has has made i i guess at this point over a hundred movies and that's kind of a achie- one once in a lifetime achievement from any director and he has many years with over 500 films under his belt of course with that notion, you have to take into an account that Méliès didn't do hour and a half features. He made short films, and many of his earlier works were these extremely short, quickly shot, documentary-style takes on everyday things and happenings. So in, in on that level, the comparison between something like Steven Spielberg's body of work and Melies' body of work is not exactly fair because one makes feature films and the other dude made quick short movies, which at least in the beginning of his career were just a few minute snippets of everyday life. And that's easy to produce. But still, it's uh, Melies, during his lifetime, Melies made over 500 
movies and that's a yeah very experimental time in filmmaking where you didn't really even have the different uh, shot sizes as we will see and we will get to all of this but uh, okay so melias uh, was firstly an illusionist he was uh, performing stage performances and uh, creating illusions so essentially a magician if you will and then found the art of film directing via the lumieres he actually did try to buy one of those lumiere film cameras but the lumieres refused they kept saying different types of things on the one hand they lumiere said that this would be a very important part in in capturing history and on the other hand they would tell for example to melias that oh this is just a little fad that will we will fade away but that's not any kind yeah. of a good reason not to sell your film camera so i think they were onto something that this will be a big thing i don't know um uh, i i kind of have an another read with the lumiere situation to me the lumiere brothers always have come out as as brothers who were never really that interested about film and cinema like movies as an art form and they didn't see the possibility of movies as an art form to me what lumiere's were more in, interested about was a film camera and film as an as in kind of an engineering achievement yeah to to i i've always seen lumiere's as engineers people who more are, are more interested about well we managed to make thing and this is how thing works than any kind of artistic self-expression through that thing and i would say this is kind of something that actually shows through in in lumiere's films where they are in lack of a better word extremely dull and mm. uninteresting today they, they were groundbreaking back in the day because nobody has ever so, uh, seen anything like that and no, nobody had ever seen a white uh, a screen where kind of a in real time a train comes uh, to the towards the camera towards the, the screen and the audience that was kind of a new experience but that i, I would all make make case that that was as far as the lumiere's themselves were interested about film and the possibilities of film yeah they... and it it took something like the the artsy stage magician Meliers to actually see that hey there is a possibilities to to tell narratives and to give illusions to the audience uh, that's also what i'm gravitating more towards that the, the lumiere saw it as a kind of a gimmick that they had created for the times and they saw it possibly as a technological technological achievement that was still new and amazing for the audiences as you said so they could milk that money for as long as it was still you know a fresh technology but perhaps that's about it and i can understand yeah. that also from the perspective that at least during those times those were incredibly noisy none of those sexy cameras that we have nowadays yeah and and, and simply you know when it comes to seeing possibilities marias may have had a kind of a better ground here because of his background in the, the state uh, in the magic tricks and being uh, being a state magician like marias previous experiences and previous life had dealt with illusion 
and giving the audiences an experience, selling them the unreal. Like back in his magician days, Melies was would, for example, for for his stage show, stage shows, Melies would develop a lantern-based projection system that allowed him to create light effect illusions inside the theater, like make it look like it would rain or snow in the theater. Melies would deal with these kind of illusions. So coming from that point, coming from the point, how can I sell an illusion? It actually kind of makes a hell of a lot of sense that Melies would be the person who would would see a camera and would see a film and and in there he would see a possibility for 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 an illusion and for a narrative something to tell. Yeah, not even surprisingly, you can also say that he was the one of the first cinematic authors. <laughs> he was often a director, producer. Uh, writer, publicist, technician, editor, all of those things kind of at the same time, before even the word star was known when attributed to an actor or actress. Yeah, and and he was uh, those things even before there really was even the technological possibilities to be those things. Melies was perhaps the first one who... understood the importance of editing and and a harsh cut in your narrative experience. Something that you quite often actually see in, for, for example, in, in our today's mo- movie, A Trip to the Moon, which uses hard editing tricks to sell you the il- illusion during its fight scenes. And a lot of these techniques that Melies would, would invent were kind of a found by accident, like for example his editing techniques. Like the, the, the story go- on that regard goes that Melias was one day just shooting one of those documentaristic takes on on the streets of Paris. And what what you have to understand is that back in these days the cameras were crank operated systems where you have to turn the crank keeping certain pace and that would make the film roll and and shoot images to the film reel. Melies was doing that on the on the streets of Paris when 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 the crank of his camera would jam. And Melies would be there cur- cursing the the jam and you know vexing and and pulling the crank back and forth trying to trying to unjam the thing eventually he would manage to do it and just continue shooting his documentaristic take. And it would be when he was developing the film that he noticed that the scene that he had started to shoot with playing children and horse-driven omnibus had all of a sudden switched so that the children and women were transformed into them into men and the omnibus had changed into a into a hearse. And that's kind of where Melies would understand that. So with, with with a harsh cut and with editing, he can actually change the reality within the film as, as it plays out, like like in a snap. One more note about uh, his wife, who also did play roles in his films. And well, if you have seen Hugo, dear listener, then the story kind of suggests very very strongly that the woman that is on one of the starts, Phoebe 
in the night sky on top of that moon that the actor would be the wife of the director but that's not the case actually the wife is seen as far as we know here it's the wife you can see in the night sky yeah but it's one of those stars there that pops up before the moon the person who is credited for being on the uh, crescent or the moon is an actor called Bluette Bernou. only about 200 films from from Melias survives today out of those 520 I think we can attribute this to uh, several factors. Well, we do know that Melias himself, out of rage one night when he was poor and uh, all of his belongings and his studio was taken away from him, he, in a short burst of rage, burned many of his film copies. And some were just, some, some copies just disappeared around the world. And as we know, they were using this. Uh, extremely flammable film material at the time, which is the leading cause of death for films from this period. I'm not entirely sure about the film reels themselves. Yeah, it was uh, it was props, sets and films at least. Do, do, do you really kind of understand the situation here? I, I guess we have to still kind of backtrack Melissa's career a bit. Okay, after uh, after finding cinema, Melies kind of became a huge name, especially with, with his fictional narrative short movies, mm. like A Trip to the Moon, which made a huge profit. It actually made so much profit that that it's rumored that Thomas Edison himself made illegal copies of the film <laughs> and showed them as his own movie, as his own movie to make money with Melies' film. Yeah, the same, and, same goddamn guy who is basically responsible for the financial downturn of both Nikola Tesla and uh, today's director. Yeah, so all around a good guy. And, but but Melies would still make a, a really good profit for himself through his movies. And something that this would lead to would be Melies starting his own own studio, where he would house his own sets and, and have his films made. And with this, Melies would kind of get more ambitious, as, as you already mentioned, with his films. And he would kind of continue to push the envelope. But where this envelope pushing would lead into would be taking more and more kind of financial risks with his movies. Like the movies would get more and more expensive. One of these would be perhaps his 1908 feature, Humanity Through the Ages, which would be kind of a very pessimistic take on the history of, of human race. Would start with from Cain and Abel to eventually into Hague Peace Conference of 1907. And, and some of these films, like Humanity Through the Ages, would be financially unsuccessful, meaning that in, in, by making these films, Melies would take a heavy financial hit. Also, a lot, Melies would be kind of a pioneer in a lot of the film technique, which also would mean expensive costs. Like, for example, Melies managed to create a color film before color film itself would be invented, like before film film reel would have the possibility of color. The way how Melies would 
achieve this would be by hand coloring and hand tinting individual frames f on, on his footage. This would be achieved, for example, painting the film footage and coloring it this way. And this was largely extremely costly and time-consuming process, which would have to be repeated for every copy of the film. And at least at one point, Melies would hire 21 women to do the hand tinting for his movie and basically every copy of that movie. So there were a lot of these these money sinks in Melies' productions that would kind of lead into or, or feed into his financial ruin in, in 1917. That there were also, also the fact that Melies was tied with a lot of costly legal battles with his rivals and, and something that most likely also played a massive part here was the First World War. The fact that the world kind of changed during, uh, during the First World War. Yeah, so about 4% of Melia's films were hand-colored. And these were hand-colored in Elisabeth Thuile's coloring lab in Paris. And she was a former colorist of glass and celluloid products. And she employed apparently only women. He, she had about 200 women working at her lab, coloring these film stocks uh, under the guidance of Thulier. And it was kind of an assembly line fashion. One person would color in one palette, only one person was assigned one color, and then it would go in an assembly line to the next person to be colored in a different color. And many films had often around or over 20 different individual colors. So incredible manual labor. Kind of, and also somewhat heartbreaking seeing how, well, film is also supposed to be seen kind of as, as an altruistic self-expression that comes from artistic ingenuity on the filmmaker's part. And like you said, uh, the World War One most definitely played a big part in the financial downfall of Melies. A Trip to the Moon was incredibly successful, but unfortunately Melies often didn't see the bank from that success because there was rampant piracy going around all over the world, especially in the US. There was a case where the film was sent uh, to Algeria and Melias gave the exact point that it could be only shown in Algeria with this copy. Well, what do you know? It travels to Algeria and suddenly it finds its way all the way to the US and suddenly it's been copied uh, several times and now it's showing all around the US. And at least in those times, it was possible that they would make illegal copies, piracy of his film and show it around. And actually, there was, it was so rampant and crazy that there were businessmen who would pretend to have rights for this film and ask for their amount of profit for these films, obviously. And when uh, the Melias brothers, Jos Melias and Gaston Melias, got the wind about this rampant piracy, they decided to create their own wing of operations in the US via their star film company. And the brother Gaston would go to the United States to, to, to inspect, follow, and make sure that this uh, piracy would end and they would see the bank. But unfortunately, a little after a trip to the moon, 
the sort of quote-unquote cinema of attractions started to lose its appeal. Perhaps it's actually his own making, because Melias created this, this narrative cinema, and there was more demand for narrative cinema. I think in some way people got tired of the Melias type of narrative cinema, and people were looking for something even better to keep their attention. I mean, the guy did make like 500 over films, so at, 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 such, at some point it's uh, not going to have the same appeal as it did. Um, that, that could be something that I would say, say that, or, or what I believe that at, at least did happen, was that the audience's tastes when it came to kind of, kind of the, uh, the naive positivity of, of Melias's work would ev- eventually kind of change. And the happy attitude of Melies would kind of be felt that that's no longer keeping in with the times. Melies was often in his films, he was very fantastical and he was very kind of optimistic. A trip to the moon as, as one example. And, and coming from the First World War, or maybe even before that, I, I would say that there could have been a heavy shift in the audience expectations and what they would want from from a film like you can you can kind of see this uh, I, I i would say even before the end of the world war or the first world war like with, with for example with, with movies like phantomus the murderous corpse from 1913 which already is a is a feature length film and on top of that, it is kind of a more dark, perhaps even more nihilistic on its approach than what Melies would would film. So, so there, there, I, I would say, with, with for example, with Phantomas, there is kind of this sense of sense of changing audience expectations and and audience tastes, and that might become even even stronger with the end of and with the experiences of the First World War, which may have been one of the most traumatic experiences in human history. I, I can very much believe that that may have led into one of the biggest war-caused co- traumas that human race has, has faced in its history. And if, if you would come back with that kind of experience, I can very well believe that something like Melies would no longer kind of a chime with you. You would want to see experience and see something very different from Melies's work. Or not see anything at all. Anyway, what... Or not see anything at all. What you're suggesting here is kind of the opposite what happens in Cinema Paradiso, which suggests that during the war or between wars or before impending war or after the war people are looking for the fun and games and the comedy something to make you laugh but suppose it wasn't really the case here that is actually a possibility that i can very much see happening and i i i myself kind of believe that that may have factored into melias's downfall a great deal something that most definitely did not help the man and this now comes back in with the notion of of burning the film reels. Is is the notion that during the war the French army confiscated over over four hundred of 
Star Films original prints yeah, yeah. and melted them down to recover silver and celluloid from the film reels, which would later be used to make make heels for for the shoes. Army shoes. That, yeah. yeah. And some of the copies were sold by a dying exhibitor company. So there are many companies kind of dissolving, destroying this, or groups of people destroying these film reels. Yeah, and like perhaps also like you suggested, perhaps also Melies himself. Yeah. I I know for a relative fact that that at least French army confiscated a hell of a lot of a lot of Melies's film stock and then melted it down into base chemicals. Yep. Interestingly, the film that you that you mentioned, the Humanity Through Ages, uh, Melias has stated that his favorite film that he made was Humanity Through Ages, and it was this historical drama which is now presumed a lost film, unfortunately. Later in his life, Melias remarked that A Trip to the Moon was, quote, surely not one of my best. But he, he did acknowledge that it was widely considered a masterpiece due to the innovations that it had, and in some ways being the first of its kind. Yeah, after his bankruptcy, Melias would be mostly unseen and unheard of. He would kind of uh, retire himself into the background and and run a store where he would sell candies and toys for children right. for quite some time. It would be 1924 when, when the French journalist George Michael Koizak would finally track him down and interview the Meliès for his for his book about French cinema. And it might be because precisely Kozak's book that eventually restarted the public interest on French cinema. And and with this also with Meliès. And this would kind of be the the comeback point of Meliès where he would once again be re- recognized and perhaps finally given the merit that the man deserved. Coming with the uh, perhaps his his personal high point when he was made Chevalier de la Legion de Honor in 1931 by actually by Louis Lumiere himself. Yeah, not a nice way to end up things, sort of. And Melias did say in his memoirs that uh, when he was there in a gala in ni- December 1929 to get his. Uh, Rise at Salpleyel, that there he, quote, experienced one of the most brilliant moments of his life. Yeah. And during his his later years of his, of his life, Melies would be, would get pretty badly sick. He would spend a long time in hospital and he eventually would die in the 21st of January in 1938 at the age of 76 yeah just quickly about the different versions still so we have officially like a black and white and a color print of this film and the black and white print was considerably cheaper for the exhibitors of course then there was the laborious color print which which cost about uh, 1000 francs at the time it was lost for many, many years and was really discovered in 1993. Judging from the film perforations, uh, the film 
is a second generation pre-1906 film copy. And the flag in the scene, though, is colored in the color of a Spanish flag, which would then indicate that this was colored for Spanish audiences. So um, there was some incredibly laborious work that was done for the color print reel once it was found, and it took incredibly long effort to salvage the material from the reel, because the film reel would be in parts decomposed, but mostly the reel had kind of I believe, adhered to itself, and the only way to separate the film from itself was to use some kind of a dissolvent, and it would go through the film material, and it would take ages, days and days and days, and it would take several goes, and on each go, they would try to separate the film with this dissolvent, it would only rescue about two seconds of the film each time. And uh, to go through this entire laborious process of remastering the film, it took a total of eight years. There was some of the missing material that was recreated from a black and white copy, and then the frames were time-converted to run at 14 frames per second, as the silent films of the era did. And the restoration was completed in 2011, with the cost of $1 million. And the restored version premiered at the 2011 Cannes Film Festival. Okay, scene by scene. Or rather, it's gonna be shot by shot this time. Because it's there aren't that many scenes. No, it's extremely short film. Alright, so film was in production from May to August 1902. And the print sales started in August as well. In the first shot, we have this so-called, quote, scientists gathering to <laughs> argue about their sciences. Uh, to argue about something... Uh, this is an interesting thing. I think what is happening here is that when this film was originally shown in uh, traditional theaters and such, it was often accompanied by music and a narrator. It could be that in this scene particularly, the narrator could have spoken actual lines that the characters would have said in this scene. I'm judging it basically only from the fact that for how long this individual shot goes and how long the argument goes there. But it could also be just that the narrator has, in this way, more time to explain what the hell is going on, who are these people, and this just basic narrator stuff. As far as I have gathered, this is a gathering of an astronomy club, and its president is a Professor Barbenfuili, who proposes an expedition to the moon. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard, hard to say for, for the astronomy club, but it is made plain and clear that the people in in the scene are supposed to be scientists of some sort, and most definitely astronomers. I think we didn't really touch on this point, but it's uh, incredibly important to note that this movie was supposed to be kind of a parody, a sarcastic take on the beliefs that people had had. Some kind of a political statement it is, definitely when you look at the final scenes, but it is some kind of a sarcastic take on the beliefs of some scientists, as they are depicted as magicians or just some kind of fools who draw something on the blackboard that, hey, here is Earth, here is Moon, here is our spaceship, and you do this, you just send it to the Moon, and that's it. I, on the other hand, kind of read it as this loving depiction of, of science, and, and seeing science and scientists kind of like magicians or alchemists of their time, who, through scientific break, uh, breakthrough, 
and and science itself would lead the humanity to reach almost magical discoveries about the world and its possibilities. There was Alison McMahon, a film scholar and a Richard Abel film historian, at least who stated that the film is poking fun at the 19th century science by means of an exaggerated adventure story and quote aims to show the illogicality of logical thinking said Alison McMahon, and then the Richard Abel argued that this is uh, his way of to invert the hierarchical values of modern French society and hold them up to ridicule in a riot of the carnivalesque. That, of course, also could be, and in that case I would here stand corrected. Uh, I saw this as perhaps the biggest example of the Jules Verne influence in, in Melies's work, as I, this is this is one of the scenes where I really see the comparison between many years fiction and Jules Verne. Verne was a hell of a lot hard sci-fi as many years is being here, but there there is this kind of charming naivety in in how how the process of getting to the moon is being shown and how the scientific community is almost unanimously agrees. On the trip, and the trip is just agreed on on the spot, and then they quickly just change their clothes there and immediately walk to the rockets to be launched to the moon. Of course, with that notion out of the way, like you said, this can also be very much the satirical take. As already back in the day, it would have been well known that that scientific expeditions. It wouldn't be that easy to pull off. Uh, there would be a hell of a lot of planning going into the preparations of the expeditions, and the expeditions themselves would be rather perilous on their nature, as Melies himself would have already known coming off with, with a history of, of expeditions like the Franklin expedition to the North Pole, which eventually would result into a, in, into a horrific loss of human life, and possibly also cannibalism. So uh, with, with that notion, it is also heavily possible, as you suggest, that this in fact is poking fun of the scientific community and it is something like a parody. Well, it most definitely is. And if not a parody, it's definitely something of a fantasy because we're still talking about 1902. So, uh, so this is not the time when people were completely oblivious of things like weightlessness. I, I think there was relatively little amount of data about the moon, but I, I unfortunately am not informed enough to comment on that further. There is no attention paid to weightlessness, which is completely removed from the equation. And there is the fact where we see the spacecraft leave the moon. Of course, it just falls off the edge of the moon and then somehow gets into space. Uh, also, Moon has ve- vegetation, aliens, and completely breathable human atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once again, yeah. I, I don't know the extent of what the scientific community knew about the Moon. As far as I know, it was a, a bit of a big mystery un- until we started to get some spaceships to to the orbit and to the Moon's surface. It, it could be. I I can kind of kind of believe that this that 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 many as a interpretation of what Moon would be like could actually be one fantastical version of what people would could have actually believed 
moon to be alike back in the day. Not not in the sense of moon having having a man face, but more in the sense of of believing that moon could sustain a breathable atm atmosphere and that there could be life and vegetation on the surface. Yeah, I'm, I'm also not quite sure how. <laughs> well, those if you have seen those early is it 1930s 1940s uh, German films of the Baron von Munchausen's adventures. In one of those, the guy goes to the moon, and it's a completely breathable atmosphere. Of course, these were really fantastical films, but I don't know how seriously this was to be taken in the moon's surface. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that they these were supposed to be taken that seriously. Yeah, but but we, we, even with that, I kind of can see that people could have believed at least on the uh, the things like. For example, the breathable atmosphere, since there still was no hard data about moon yeah. at all back back in the day. Not even that much about the atmosphere or you know outer space. And one thing, as we discussed, is that it's not utilized in the film is the different shot sizes. So essentially, the whole film is a stage-like shot, which he is very much known for, this director, Melias. It's a constant kind of wide shot, stage shot. You see kind of what is on the stage. Even when you get further in the film and the spaceship leaves the moon, you don't even get a sort of a wider shot where you would have the planet Earth and the moon in the same shot and the spaceship uh, kind of dropping back to the Earth. You don't get that. It's just uh, actually it's cutting from one kind of a full shot, wide shot to the, to the shot where it uh, drops into the ocean. So uh, it's, it's not as clear as if you had had a wider shot where you would see the both of the planets and the, 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 and the spaceship falling back to Earth. Which is interesting. Well, something that may may have factored into that is the fact that basically the whole thing was shot on stage. Like the the the, <laughs> the images in in the film, the combination of physical props and things like painted backgrounds and other and such. So there there is certain physicality to the movie. And that may have also been because it was shot on stage, because it was shot with with physical props, hiding behind them stairs and pedestals and other, uh, uh, other things that would kind of uh, help, for example, the, uh, the actors to raise and lower themselves in relation to the ter ter uh, shown terrain. It could also bring up limitations, what Melies was a would have been able to shoot and something like a more difficult shot which which would show you both the moon and the spaceship landing on on water for example could have been perhaps a little bit too techni uh, difficult uh, technicality wise for Melias to pull off i can see that it wouldn't uh, look anything but wonky given that he he likes to maintain this kind of a 2d-esque look to each frame that he composes so uh, it's hard to drop that spaceship down to a planet from that kind of a uh, looking glass. But yeah, there is an, indeed this argument going on and uh, it gets really heated. And then Barbara uh, Fuel, the professor, is like throwing the paper everywhere. Like things get so heated, even paper is flying. He's like, 
Eat my research papers, you scum. But finally, there's five crazy members who agree to travel to the moon. They are Nostradamus, Alcov, Frisbas, Omega, Micromegas, and Paravara Garamus, and Barbenfui himself. We already have one of these uh, uh, substitution splice techniques here. The scientist magicians turn their telescopes into chairs. The director Melias is very much known for this substitution splice technique. As, as you discussed earlier, he came up with it at least on by his own words. There was at least one short film about a decapitation where this technique was already used. So uh, it can't be really confirmed whether Melias first saw that film and then used that technique in his own work, or whether he just came up with that when he was working on his own film, which is perfectly possible because dude does over 500 plus films. It's bound to happen at some point. Yeah, there's also, uh, when it comes to Melias in inventing film and film techniques, it's also something that we can question how much Méliès actually did directly invent when he was making movies. He he did invent, for example, the, the editing techniques and how editing can sell the illusion. But there, there is still kind of, kind of a question with Méliès. How much did he in, invent, for example, on the department of physical props and how to use physical props and how much that is is knowledge that Melies had already acquired in his stage magician days and now he only translates that knowledge to work on on a different media to work on film if he didn't uh, specifically invent much he certainly perfected a lot of the techniques that had been used before him and made them popular that he did Already in this first shot, we see that he's not providing, as we know, different angles to takes. He just keeps the camera rolling and has everything of meaning happening in that one shot. He doesn't want to cut the action. But actually, there is one jump cut later, whether it is because of the film had been aging and there were some technical glitches there, I'm not sure, but I would argue that there's a jump cut there. We can get to that later. Uh, to kind of provide more more to this whole satire aspect of A Trip to the Moon. If you look at the the Impossible Voyage, which he did later, Melias played an engineer Mabulov of the Institute of Incoherent Geography in that film. So if you go by that, then probably A Trip to the Moon is uh, very satiric as well in nature. Yeah, now that you mentioned, yeah, he did. And... With, with that notion, oh, oh, okay, yeah, um, may it, it does lay a, a lot of weight on the notion that a trip to the moon would also be a satirical take and poking fun at the scientific community and the way how the public would perceive the scientific community. The Impossible Voyage, which is quite similar in many aspects to a trip to the moon. There, a trip is taken uh, to the ocean and also inside the sun. <laughs> Did you hear different takes on the music, the soundtrack of the film? I've seen the David Short version with the Billy Brass Quintet, and then I've seen the 2011 uh, Blu-ray version where you have, I believe the band is called, or the group is called Air, which performed the soundtrack. Um, I, I, I have heard some of them. I, I do remember like some of that I could 
Uh, but I have most ex- definitely. I, I have experienced the Billy Brass Quintet. Yeah. Uh, e- even though this director took uh, a lot of interest in scoring his own films and wrote some scores for a few few of them, he did give the exhibitors the liberty to use whatever music they pleased. Um, it was reported that during the 1902 Olympia Music Hall screening of the film, that it would have been accompanied by an original film score. But as far as I know, the music is lost to the history. It is also likely that a certain Ezra Reed wrote a p- piano piece in 1903 for the entirety of the film. And since then, there's been a plethora of different written scores for the film, including one by Nicholas Godin and Jean Benoit Dunkel. This is the air group. And then there is one by Lawrence Leherissi. Leherissi? which is a great-great-grandson of Melias. In the next shot, we are building the spacecraft. Must have taken years of research and cost in the billions of dollars to do this spaceship. Or, or then just one weekend in, in somebody's backyard. That's exactly how it looks like. <laughs> I have a great idea. Let's fly to the moon. Let's do it. Yeah, and, and sticking with the notion and... and the ideology of the times. Oh, of course, it's gonna be a giant bullet that is launched off from a, from, the, from a giant cannon. <laughs> as uh, uh, everything you need to reach the moon is just a big ass explosion. It, it would actually be r- really funny to see, see see that kind of a simplicity in in Melies' film. Had it not be unfortunately the misconceived notion of some folks even today. I suppose this is their this is their source of inspiration and the factual <laughs> reference. I I I don't know where they actually what they use as reference, but there for 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 example was that one lunatic who tried to launch himself to the to the orbit on his homemade spaceship <laughs> to to see if if Earth really was flat and. <laughs> And, and and that that actually played off with the very much the, with the with a similar idea that Melies is throwing around with here now like, like that perceived notion that all you need to worry about to launch yourself into the orbit would just be a big ass explosion. Right. I hope he went through with that plan. He he did he did he he's not a person anymore because accidents <laughs> happen. <laughs> Sounds about. Right. In the next shot, uh, people are observing the launch from a rooftop, apparently. This was the most mystical shot for me in the film. Like, There's a lot of smoke that we see in the distance coming from those pipes, but also coming from the ground. But it seems completely unrelated to the launch. But some random people are checking out what is happening around the launch area. I guess the experiment is so preposterous that the people like to keep their distance. But did you gather where the hell this smoke is coming from and whatever it might have to do with the blood? Actually, I I didn't. Yeah. Like what with, with the notion, uh, like with with the smoke, you have the notion that some of the smoke is coming from the factory pipes around the launch area. But then there is one sudden spurt of smoke coming, uh, which appears to be on the from the ground level which happens rather suddenly in, in the scene. And I don't actually know what that spurt of smoke is supposed to be. 
Everybody in the scene seems to be making a huge fuss about about that puff of smoke. So I I'm guessing it has something to do with the launch itself. One theory that I did play out was that that may have been some kind of a test launch and smoke from that. Mm -hmm. And they would have been witnessing witnessing an attempted test launch to see if if they can really actually launch a ship to the moon with actual people in it. Suppose we agree that these are just uh, agree on that these are just random civilians looking at the show. Yeah, maybe. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, per perhaps it, it it can be the the scientists who make the trip to the moon. Like, like there are a couple of scientists who, uh, in my opinion, look rather similar to the group that. Uh, eventually goes to the moon. Well, there is also the case that they used to recycle a lo lot of the actors in Melia's films, so who knows. There, there, there is that. There is also the notion that, that if you're not looking at the hand-colored print, then the image is extremely black and white, and it's even more harder to different between characters. Next shot is uh, pushing the craft into the cannon. For me, one of the most legendary shots of the film. And as you can see, there were a lot of theatrical means utilized uh, in this film, as always in Melia's productions, such as the stage machinery and pyrotechnics, mechanics. And here we have the bullet-shaped spaceship, which is in the next shot then launched uh, from the launching pad. But here it's been pushed with the help of some marines, apparently. Uh, young women in sailor outfits. Honestly, they just look like Melia's cheerleaders from the set or something. Here we have the launching of the spacecraft and uh, now the cheerleaders are going to some kind of a parade formation. And somebody is playing the pipe or something. It's very militaristic, as we see here. There was a cinema historian such as Jos Zadul who argued that the first half of the film before the liftoff is derived from Verne and that the second half would be derived from wells on the moon, more or less. But as we have already found out, I think the it's very much a Vern thing, these mushrooms. And here we have the, the man in the moon. Whether it's the man on the moon or the man in the moon, I guess can be argued. I guess it's basically man in the moon, as the moon is the man. <laughs> so they uh, land safely as the man on the moon watches them and they land on his eye. And, and apparently goes straight through it. As right. in the next shot, uh, the ship bullet thingy is is still actually moving and hasn't stopped. Yeah, this is uh, some kind of a temporal continuity right here. So we see from two angles the same landing. The spacecraft is seen first in this moonshot and then in the next shot. So non-linear storytelling. Which... Kind of does beg the question, where exactly did the spacecraft land? But mm. I, 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 is it the kind of the case that they, they managed to hit the moon in the eye, and then the spacecraft, just kind of like a bullet, just continued its its journey and eventually hit moon in the brain? Is that where the adventure is taking place? Yeah, and what's with this dimensions in the first shot you have the moon and it hits the eye and it looks like the moon is a very little thing where you can barely have space to <laughs> walk on obviously we see that this is complete fantasy and nothing really makes sense 
and in the next shot it's out of proportion like that. And this whole moon shot, it's a type of a pseudo tracking shot. This, I guess, can be attributed to as an invention of Melias. He used this for the first time in 1901 in The Man with the Rubber Head. And here we have the technique, which is that rather than panning the heavy camera towards your actor or your subject, they had a pulley-operated chair upon a rail-fitted ramp. So, and the actor was covered up to his neck in black velvet. I believe the meaning here is to, to cover him so it can be used as a separate element and then, and then used uh, for superimposing purposes in the film. So he was on this uh, rail and uh, the actor was pulled towards the camera. And that's what you see with the moon face. Which is quite inventive when you really think about it. Yeah, wow. amazing. Now really surprised that the, that the magician would be the one to invent cinema. Kind of go hand in hand. Now we're in the moon. We have landing, the sleeping, and the snowing. As we see, no spacesuits are needed. Something happens. Something just seems to explode, which uh, that startles all the people. And right after that, what do they do? They decide to sleep right there where the explosion happened. I'm not sure what that was. It's one of those puffs. They sleep on the moon and the comet passes by. The Big Dipper appears with those human faces, including Melias's wife. And the Saturn the God peeks out of Saturn the planet. And Phoebe, goddess of the moon, is seen seated on the crescent. In which might be the weirdest moment of the film. Right. And there is snow on moon. Yeah, um, um, as it of course does. Seeing how Moon has Earth-like atmosphere. <laughs> Phoebe then causes apparently a snowfall, the snowfall, and which makes the astronomers to wake up. So naturally they seek shelter from a cavern. As we have already seen at this point, these are very artistic and beautiful, these this, um, background plates that they are using. Uh, really, it's uh, even, to this, even to this day, it's... Uh, pleasure to look for the artistic values it is and depending on the the print of the film that you are using it's actually pretty damn impressive and pretty damn seamless with with with, uh, uh, with the elements that are more on the front of the image like especially in in the black and white version of the film you really can't tell a difference behind the painted backgrounds and then the painted and more physical props on the front of the image no not really would love to see melias-esque film made nowadays and filmed from this one perspective in this 2d way like yeah well there are, there are like that there are some small things where you can act Still, the, still, they used to to realize that the backgrounds are painted. For example, the the in the cave shot, there is the waterfall in the background, and if you pay attention to the waterfall, you actually notice that the water really isn't falling, and that's kind of a gives away you the information that that's a painted background. But other than that, I would say that. The backgrounds and the way how they are painted are, is pretty goddamn seamless with with rest of the film props in use. Okay, to, to me that water falling, it looked like 
actual water that would have been dropped off some of those sets. Yeah, so mushroom cavern shot. Things get a little trippy now. I mean, even more trippy. We have the mushrooms, and one ast- astronomer opens up his umbrella, and it turns into a mushroom. Now we get to the selenites, the aliens. But they are rather easily destroyed by the magic powers of a forceful hit. And the aggression, to me, seems to start with the humans. The selenites were of no threat to them, but... No! Uh, yeah. No, no, uh, that's uh, also my thing. And it kind of a ma- makes this a weird experience. Because you you have this group of scientists who want to get to the moon. And they they make this this huge endeavor, this huge project to launch themselves into the moon. And they finally reach the moon. And they actually finally meet one of the moon, fo- moon forks. And... For some re- odd reason, the scientists immediately resort to violence when meeting another sentient creature in Moon. Uh, exactly, and uh, there's been, uh, for example, film scholar Matthew Solomon who argued that this was an anti-imperialistic statement, that there they go to try to wreak havoc in the Moon, and then they take one of the them aliens back with them to Earth, and... And they use this uh, as a token, as a prize, publicly around the statue and the parade. And that's uh, actually something that really good people on play here with, with, with the film. Yeah, uh, we'll get to the statue later in, in, the, in that shot, but there's more. The Selenite's costumes, that was one of the most expensive part of the entire film. Melias himself uh, was sculpting a lot of prototypes for the alien looks. Unfortunately, as they keep destroying the selenites, more and more appear, and therefore the humans get captured, which leads to our next shot at the selenite king's lair. So even the selenites must have human-like hierarchies. Yeah, in, in a scene which, if if you take the the notion that humans are the aggressors here, and the ones who, who start the violence unnecessarily towards the cellulites the in in the in the hall of the king scene can actually be seen as something where the the scientists have been pretty rightly taken into an into a custody and then brought in to a front of a tribunal or some kind of a court system where they could be sentenced for the unnecessary murders that have happened in the previous scene. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth Ezra commented the following quote, his film also thematizes social differentiation on the home front as the hierarchical patterns on the moon are shown to bear a curious resemblance resemblance to those on Earth, end quote. One of the humans lifts up the Selenite King from his throne and throws him away and then uh, causes him to explode by hitting him. Well, it could be a Selenite King or a Queen, I'm not sure. Selenite leader, creature. Yeah, we don't presume gender in this podcast. <laughs> no. No. We are, we are very inclusive also when it comes to aliens. And there is the first escape shot. They are running while they're destroying the aliens and... Uh, it feels like watching Super Mario, Henrik. Like, astronomers run back to their capsule while still fighting the pursuing selenites. And I feel that this might be the most 2D-esque experience of the entire film. And it feels like a video game. Because the movement is always left to right. 
right to left. And and not once up and down properly. <laughs> An escape shot number two, launching off to space by falling off a cliff. Yeah, this is what we have all been waiting uh, or, for. Or, or, or something, falling back to Earth from from the moon. <laughs> do, do you have a theory what happens to Barman Fuil here? Because it's so hard to differentiate who survives, who is here and there. The sixth astronomer, Barbenfuel, because he uses a rope to dip the spacecraft over a cliff and therefore it somehow lifts off into space. I would guess that Barbenfuel then dies, but unknown. Isn't he being celebrated in, in the final shot when the scientist gets medals? Or, or not the final shot, the shot before that. The huge celebration scene. Well, if so, then this is uh, some proto-Bruce Willis Armageddon shit right here. It, it very much is. I mean, we, we are talking about, about the lead scientist of the expedition who does all, all the fighting on, on the surface of the moon. Yeah, what a hero. Yeah, that's very much your action hero scientist right there. Maybe the, <laughs> Maybe the first action hero or action hero scientist in the history of cinema. I, I would make a case... That most likely the first, at least the first action hero scientist. <laughs> and judging from the next shot, it seems that he has gotten back into the spaceship while hanging on the front of the spaceship somehow, because I don't see him anymore in that outside the spacecraft. And as we see, one of the selenites manages to grab on the craft, and the and the astron- astronomer capsule and the selenite fall into an Earth ocean. Before they go off the cliff, there seems to be a jump cut here. Because there is this one puff that happens in front of the ship when they destroy one of them, one of these uh, selenites. And because the puff is kind of hiding part of the action there, they cut to a moment where the puff has uh, dissolved to a level that we actually see everything again. So I believe this is this might be one of the first jump cuts in history. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot of jump cut, cuts being used. For example, to achieve the the effect of of the exploding cellulites throughout the fight scenes of the of the film, like like the way how how that effect would would have been achieved is that Melies first would have let the action action play into a certain point, like up until the point of of hitting someone, and then he would have freeze the actors, letting the camera run. And then he would go in, uh, in in front of the camera and explode the the smoke grenade. And after the smoke would have cleared, the action would have pre- uh, uh, continued as presumed. And yeah. then in the editing stage, Melies would cut out the frames from the point where the act- actors freeze up until the point when the, the action or the movement once again continues. Yeah, but this, this, yeah, this, this way, erasing any trace of the actors actually being freezed uh, and himself getting in front of the camera and exploding the smoke grenade. Yeah, this is uh, such of a fun technique that was uh, one of the first things that I played around with the video camera. I suppose that happens to everybody, replacing items and such and such. But I'm not sure if you got my point that there happens this puff and then... There is the smoke, but the smoke takes so much time to be on the screen that 
it just jump cuts into the moment where it has. I I, I did notice notice that, and yeah, it, it does. It, it it does. There, there there is a small time lapse that happens. Yeah. So in, next shot, the spacecraft is now falling simply, and as we can see, there's no weightlessness anywhere in the story. Things just fall. The things just just fall, and and somehow the the lead astronomer, the lead scientist, who who is the first one falling, pulling the the gigantic bullet spaceship with him, and with with a spaceship, also the spaceship riding cellulite. Somehow none of that harms the lead scientist as he falls into into hard water when they finally manage to land. Right. Like you, you would believe that the dude would be somewhat crushed after that experience. What would have been even more satisfying would have been that once they were falling, there would be some kind of a retro rockets and they would set the guy on fire in the back. <laughs> but kudos for Melies actually show, showing and, and imagining here a controlled landing into sea, which is the tactic that they actually are using in the real life today. Kinda, kinda. But this one goes into deep waters, at least at first. And this at, one... at first, and then, then it <laughs> swims back to the surface, I guess. Yeah, this uh, crash into the ocean was filmed on location. And uh, of course, the uh, different elements were then included with multiple exposure. The spacecraft was filmed in front of a black background and then superimposed with the shot of the sea. The underwater shot here was done by combining a, combining a cardboard cutout of the capsule with an aquarium which contained tadpoles and air jets. I believe the super imp- it was a superimposed fish tank as well. And now they're pulling the spacecraft to the coast. I was waiting for that extra twist where they would be captured by pirates, but it uh, didn't happen. Eh, it re- it would have required another six minutes of film and that would have been way too much yeah that could have been a nice sequel but they all get rescued by the ship and there are also also transitional dissolves i'm not sure if it was here but there are transitional dissolves uh maybe even a couple of times and there's a lot of firsts that are hard to track down in the beginning of the film history because a lot of films were made a lot of films were lost here we get to the parade so this uh, final parade sequence, it was not available in some older prints of the film. A celebratory parade sequence uh, in honor in honor of the astronauts. So uh, the captive selenite is also on display. In the next shot, there's a commemorative statue unve- unveiled, 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 bearing the motto Labor Omnia Vincit, more or less that in Latin, which means work conquers all. Something interesting to note is that Melias has had also worked previously as an anti-Bulangist political cartoonist, so anti-imperialist cartoonist, and the uh, Matthew Solomon therefore saw this as a connection here that the film would be mocking imperialistic domination, showing the colonial conquerors as bumbling pedants who attack the aliens take a mistreated captive to a self-congratulatory parade. And it is said that the statue also resembles the colonialists that the Melias was making fun of in his cartoons. 
Now I haven't oh. seen them, but that would make sense. It, it would, and that's something that you kind of also can see in 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 the shot itself. The way how the lead astronomer is is in this half kneeling pose, having one one leg on top of moon or moon's head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when initially agreeing to do this episode, I had no idea that there would be so many levels that you could find in a little old short film. But uh, uh, this was completely unexpected to find so many political aspects here. It, it is. I... <sighs> Having having that many many, many themes, having having that deep deep of a political aspect, it's kind of kind of a hard to believe to be found, especially in in a rather short movie. Like you would think that presenting any kind of idea would take a hell of a lot of time and mm-hmm. and and stuff like dialogue or 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 dialogue cards or something like that. Like, for example, how it was presented in, in the previous silent film that we checked out, The Birth of a Nation, which also had a very mm. subtle political message hidden I- 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 under the surface. And, yeah. and for that movie to bring, bring its messaging across, it, 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 it had to run for a million years and, and be way too long for... For the audiences, but also use a hell of a lot of dialogue cards. It did, and to drive the point home in that film, you could have required only five minutes, and that would have been enough. Yeah. All right, so that's the film, and here it uh, doesn't even fade to black. It just cuts to black, and no credits or anything because credits or stars or listing people's names who were part of a project wasn't really a thing it had it had to be apparently <laughs> invented <laughs> the budget for the film was 10000 francs and according to historicalstatistics.org if we can believe this currency calculator it would just suggest that in today's us dollars it would have been roughly 50000 us dollars meaning that fil- ma- making a film was cheap as dirt back in the day Right, and uh, I think Melias at least got his budget back, I hope, from the exhibitors that were willing to pay his due. So the film was sold to distributors uh, from August 1902. The color print was shown for the first time between September through December 1902. film was successful around the US and the Europe, and and there was this uh, speculation that the film would be aimed to conquer the U.S., as mentioned, and it did conquer the U.S., but wasn't much beneficial for its creator, let's say it like that. There was also the fact that uh, there were some price standardizations in America that were first beneficial for Melias, but when they changed those standards, then it was not so good for his career, and uh, it contributed to his financial ruin. Well, that was a trip to the moon. Would it be quickies? I, I I guess it would be a trip to the quickies. All right. Favorite performance? It's hell of a hard to name, seeing <laughs> how most of the cast and crew here goes uncredited by, by the film. And there's no clear record on, on who exactly por- uh, take part in the film. I'm kind of going off 
with a with a hunch, but maybe my but, but my favorite per performance is maybe Henry Delannoy. But anyways, the ma- the guy who plays the main scientist of the film. Uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, this for me is a shared one between the ac- acrobats of the Folie Berger playing the Selenites. Nice flexing right there. They kind of made the Selenites their own. <laughs> they own their characters. Favorite shot? There's a double hitting moon in the eye. Yeah, that would be the easy way to go with the man in the moon shot. But other than that, I found the mushroom cavern shot really the most dreamlike and most beautiful in the entire film. Favorite scene? <laughs> well, well, for me, the entire moon scene for sure was the most titillating. Yeah, I take the same. Favorite quote or favorite line? Lines. It's it's that one moment when all the characters notion to something and nobody says anything. <laughs> I wrote nothing, but if I had to pick it's, something... It's a silent film, god damn it. Yeah. It was probably all, all those naughty words that the professor was spouting when he was throwing his papers at his comrades. Favorite kill? Uh, on my end, that would be the Moon King who gets... A face full of WWE wrestling moves from the lead scientist guy. Oh, right, yeah. Probably wasn't a, a guy who waited a lot. Didn't have a lot of mass on the moon. He looked k- k- kind of thin. Yeah, that's a, that's a good notion. It was a good kill, but my favorite kill is the first umbrella kill in the Super Mario shot when they escape. The first shot during the escape. Yeah, there was some good... Use for fists. What drew you out? Uh, nothing in this famous case. Yeah, same. What drew you in? The main thing I I would say are the sets. Yeah. For me, just generally the whole ludicrousness with lack of science here. It's quite enjoyable as a fantasy. What would you change in the film? Would you improve the film, Scissors of Sacrilege? I maybe would trim it a hell of a lot. I, I kind of felt that it it was too long and it didn't really move with that fast of a pace that there was a lot a lot, a lot of empty time in in the movie there kind of was uh, i think the most in the first shot yeah i'm i'm just kidding i actually wouldn't change anything you hypocrite <laughs> really <laughs> <laughs> yeah well if i would do anything i would do something to the first shot goes for a little will it drags a little but overall it moves really fast and is very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it it is something like 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 fourteen minutes. Yep. Uh, in, in in its entire running time, there really is not that 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 much <laughs> that you can say that there is wasted time on the film. True, true. What would be your evil alternate version of the climax or the ending? I would go still with the pirates. Uh, definitely pirates capturing the spacecraft and asking for ransom. For I really don't have any kind of alternate ending for the film. I, th- I think it wraps up pretty nicely. Yeah, three adjectives to describe the film. Mine would be historical, artistic, and beautiful in its naivety. Okay, we have one matching here. Beautiful, ridiculous, and dreamlike. Did you look at your watch? No, 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 no. No. Would you recommend a trip to the moon? I most definitely would recommend it. It, it, it is one, one of the, those really important films that 
you really should check out if you are in, into cinema, dude. Type of, type of cases. It's also one, one of those preserved films of the beginning of the cinema. So in, in that regard, I do think that it really does merit to see this film. There is also the fact that even today, a lot of directors, like for example Wes Anderson, take a lot of influence from Melies' work, which you can see in, in, in the cinematography and also in the way how, how Anderson's films work out. So if, if you are something like a fan of Wes Anderson, in that case, I also would say that it does well for you to check out Melies and it, from Melies' body of work. Well, A Trip to the Moon is is the most famous one, the most known one, so it's also the most easiest to get into your hands or even even check it out in, in the YouTube. But overall, I would most definitely, I would recommend Melies' films and, and what is still being preserved from his body of work. Something like over 200 films, which still even today do remain. And also, Melies is an interesting director in the way how he built his sets and how he used physical props and physical sets and the physical aspect of filmmaking. And there's, a, I would say, there's a lot of, especially today, especially on the time of a digital filmmaking, digital shooting, there is, I would say, there is a lot to actually see in this more, more traditional, the old school physical filmmaking style that Melies uses here. I, I, for example, myself personally, I am more interested in trying to, to make a film in the same way like Melies, like Melies did his, his movies. In this very physical, I'm using real sets, everything is 100% real, there is no visual effects, no Photoshop in the image type of way. And I, I would say that shooting a film this way today could actually be a really interesting experience to pull off. That's a really good point. I think it would benefit a lot of the amateur hour films nowadays when uh, almost everybody is using some green screenshots that uh, almost always tend to be really subpar because it's really hard to just get it right. You have to get the lighting right, you have to make it in the seams seamless. <laughs> and rarely do they pull that off, even in the little bit higher productions in the amateur cinema. Yeah, and even, even if they would manage to pull off the lighting and other other pre-work for, for the scene to work, then especially in, in cheap amateur cinema, they then go and fuck up on, on the CGI department. Right. And and the combined effect in the final film still is that the effect comes off really badly. And you can really tell the hokiness of, of, of the CGI shots. Yeah, I would really love to do some kind of a short film with you using plates, which would be probably then painted by your girlfriend. Painted by someone. <laughs> Painted by someone. Painted by someone. If, Most likely some kind of a Chinese sweatshop. Because <laughs> we, are, we are kind of on, on a budget here on the podcast. Yeah. It might work if you keep it blurry in the background. I'm starting to get some funny ideas here. 
you could use use the dim lighting to your advantage. Hmm. E- even even with that that kind of work put into into your shots, like like with with usage of physical props and physical effects in in your film, even if if the props and the effects wouldn't come off exactly right, I I would say that. If, the, most likely the audience still would be more accepting to your film and at what they see on the screen if you would use use even bad physical effects than if you use CGI and green screen and then are not on the Marvel level of excellence with, with the computer yeah. generated stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you really think about it, you even rarely needed to be a green screen unless you wanted to keep it keep the background in absolute focus and you're using a lot of daylight but yeah i i could definitely see you could have like a, some uh, window fire in the background uh, at the end of the hallway and uh, that would work perfectly i believe in the case where movement is not needed fascinating yeah and of course uh resounding yes i would recommend this film it's not like it's going to take a lot of your time to learn some basic uh, cinema history so i would say that you can put aside your smartphone for 16 minutes and watch this film you might even yeah, learn yeah if, if, if you can if you can spare over two hours to check out something like infinity war or avengers endgame i i guess you can also squeeze in something like 15 minutes to Check out an old French film that everybody in the cinema circles, even today, is is raging all about. Yeah, if you spend 13 hours watching Sex Education, I think you can watch this for 16 minutes. You really know you're watching A Trip to the Moon when? When you take a bullet spaceship into your eye. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Uh, you really know you're watching A Trip to the Moon when you have a sleepover on the moon. And you try to colonize it with an umbrella. Would it be time to shuttle off into space with uh, no weightlessness? Yeah, at least to the end credits of, of today's episode. Sounds about right. What is our next film? I don't know. Maybe it's something Polish. Oh. I hope it's going to be No Man's Land from Bosnia, though. From 2001. Okay, we are still trying to get hunt down a guest. I'm guessing. We already have a guest. Okay. The problem now is that we don't have the movie. <laughs> it's still stuck somewhere around the world. It's about to reach me, at least. Well, we are ha- halfway there. We 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 do have a guest for a film that nobody has seen. <laughs> but thank you, thank you, dear listeners, for this episode. Uh, I hope you haven't forgotten that you can rate us on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you may be able to rate us it would be greatly appreciated because it will help us a lot and there's also that web page that we have that nobody remembers in, in, including us the flicklab.com <laughs> yeah they in, in in the front of the address because for some odd reason Curry just couldn't rent the domain flicklab.com right well <laughs> have to go with the show title right i hope it's not too complicated for you to type that out in case it is just Go to a podcast player and uh, you can write only the Flick Lab and you will find us. In the meantime and in the between time, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. I believe those are 
The places where the common curse frequent, as Henrik noted in Coriolanus episode. <laughs> I think that wraps it up. I guess that's all for today. And here we have the the man in the moon. Whether it's the man on the moon or the man in the moon, I guess can be argued. I guess it's basically man in the moon, as the moon is the man. Siinä oli oikeastaan kaikki, mitä mulla on nyt noista faktapuolella asioista.